working drummer. Now kick it. This is the Working Drummer Podcast, serving up perspectives, experiences, and stories from ground-level working pros. Advice, tips, and secrets on how to build a career in the music business. Hey everyone, this is Matthew Krause, and you are listening to the podcast, Working Drummer. Today my guest is drumming legend Rick Murata. Rick is known for his recordings and touring with such luminaries as James Taylor, Jackson Brown, Steely Dan, Carly Simon, Paul Simon, Linda Ronstadt, Aretha Franklin, Larry Carlton, Warren Zevon, and Bette Midler. Many of us are familiar with his drumming on iconic tracks like Steely Dan's Peg and Take Me Alive, as well as James Taylor's Hour That the Morning Comes, and many, many more. Rick's current activities include writing music for movies and television, recording jingles and producing, as well as regular performing gigs with his brother, Jerry Murata. Rick recently held a master class in Nashville at the Drum Pad at Drum Paradise, and he is planning on hopefully doing more master classes in the near future. As always, you can find us at workingdrummer.net to find out more information about this episode and all the episodes that we've done so far in the last three and a half years. Subscribe to us on iTunes. You can find us now on YouTube. We are slowly building our library of past episodes. We are also on Stitcher and Google Play. When you're on iTunes, please subscribe. This helps us grow. You can also find us on Instagram and Facebook. If you want to support what we do here at the podcast, Working Drummer, there are two ways that you can do that. We offer a PayPal button on the front page of the website. You can also find us at Patreon, at Patreon slash Working Drummer. Any donation is much appreciated, and it helps us cover the expenses of producing this podcast. Here's our bi-weekly check-in with Arjuna Contreras as he makes the move from Texas to Nashville. Hello. Hey, man. How you doing, Matt? I'm doing good, man. How are you <clears throat> on this fine Wednesday? <laughs> I'm doing great. Just getting my day started. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. That's good. It's, it's, uh... Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm. I should tell you, I'm an hour behind you, though. Also, so. Like, oh, I'm oh. So it's, it's only twelve thirty. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's only coming up on twelve thirty right now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, where are you, man? Uh, Boulder, Colorado, today. Okay. Yeah, we're still out, still out on tour. You know, we're about halfway through um, this run that we have going here in April. Um, yeah, we're playing uh, playing in Boulder tonight. Had the day off yesterday here in town. Boulder's a pretty cool, cool little area. I don't think I've spent that much time here before. I mean, I know I've played a show or two, but it's always been like kind of dropping in and dropping out. But is the Fox Theater there in Boulder? That that's actually where we're playing tonight. Yeah, Fox nice, Theater. Nice, nice, man. Yeah, yeah, I love that place, man. I had a chance to play there a while ago, and I've got some pictures that a friend of mine, a professional photographer, took, and then those pictures ended up being used for many years you know you get that like oh nice you know you get that that picture that somebody takes on a gig and you're like that's a good shot mm-hmm. i'm gonna use that and it's always at the fox theater there in boulder what a cool place yeah oh cool yeah 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 we're looking looking forward to it um should be good you know uh, a couple of days ago we were we played out in estes park which was gosh that it's really beautiful out there mm-hmm. too mm-hmm. um uh, and we, we actually played at the stanley hotel <laughs> you know the, oh. where uh, Stephen, where Stephen King, you know, like I allegedly like had the, a nightmare that led to his, you know, to writing the sh- of the sh- of the Shining. Oh, yeah, gosh. like I guess he wrote it wrote it at that hotel. 
How is the pacing of the tour going? Are, are you having some time off to, to kind of like regenerate before in between shows? Yeah, you know, on this one, we've had a couple more days off than we're used to having, okay. which has been really great. Um, one was an accidental day off. We actually had a show cancellation in Wichita because it was Kansas. It was supposed to be an outdoor show. And the weather was just too cold. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's it's been it's been a little bit uh, slower pace than usual. I mean, usually um, when we're on the road, it's uh, six nights on, one night off, with like our night off usually being Monday. Okay. But this tour, it's like we've already had th- we've only we've been out for two weeks, and we've already had three days off. Um. So yeah, it's it's been good. I mean, I I feel great. I feel probably more. Uh, awake than in previous com- previous conversations <laughs> that we've had. <laughs> Is there anything that you're doing like intentionally during these days off to kind of keep yourself kind of mentally and physically in shape? Yeah, I have been. Well, um, the one thing is I'm really, really on top of walking. Like I already have planned out, you know, after we finish talking, I'm going to walk from the hotel here to the venue, which is a mile yeah. And I'm going to walk back after sound check. So I've been really like, I've, I know I've been mentioning that in previous For sure. conversations, but I've been really, I've been really sticking on the walking thing. I mean, I haven't really gotten into, you know, lifting weights much. And I know that I, there's got to be a balance there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've been doing the cardio a lot and I don't know if I've mentioned this before, but I use this meditation app like every morning, which I, which I really think I've, I'm seeing some, uh, <clears throat> some benefit from just in, in terms of helping me be more uh, mindful and helping me um, kind of stay more in the moment than yes. I usually am. Like I've always been someone who's always overthought things in the past or mm-hmm. things in the potential mm-hmm. future. And like um, this app that, I mean, there's a lot of great apps, you know, for the, you know, for iPhone or Android that are kind of like guided meditation type ones. And the one that I use is really nice. I really, really like it. Let me ask you about um, just as far as the time off and, and curating contacts and, you know, kind of expanding a, a network in as much as you can while you're on the road. Do you find yourself doing anything like yeah. that, being proactive as much as you can? Yeah, I'm, I'm trying, mm-hmm. you know, I'm trying to stay in touch with the people that I know in Nashville, for example, um, you know, I think I mentioned uh, a couple of weeks ago or one of our last conversations that it looked like there was a, uh, another gig on lower Broadway and that did come through. So like, I'll be doing that. Like when I'm back in town, okay. you know, I, I think I might've mentioned also that there's a couple of guys in the rockabilly scene, um, that are, that live in Nashville and have asked me to do some recording with yeah. them in May. Well, cool. I'm gonna let you go so you can walk. I'm doing. I'm planning on doing the same thing. As a matter of fact, when I'm finished doing some recording, oh, right so <laughs> be in the same spirit. Cool. You'll be a, you'll be about a mile um, above me. Above you. <laughs> Just yeah. be aware the oxygen <laughs> oxygen is a little bit thinner up there. Right. <laughs> All right, my friend. We'll have a great rest of the week, and I'll, I'll talk to you real soon. Sounds good, man. You too. Take care, okay. brother. See you, man. Bye bye. All right. All right. Bye bye. Here's my conversation with Rick Murata. Actually, that was one of the first things I wanted to do was just kind of do a quick shout out to Harry uh, for connecting us. Uh, Harry McCarthy at Drum Paradise, and then they've got the drum pad they're promoting. And you recently had the uh, master class there. And I wanted to ask you about that, if you don't mind. Sure. What, uh, what kind of things did you cover when you were here? And is this a common occurrence to do the master classes or any type of clinic? No. I... Um, 
it's not a common occurrence for me to do it. As a matter of fact, if it weren't for Harry, I probably, I, I never would have thought of it. And if it weren't for Harry, I, I wouldn't have done it. But mm -hmm. I've known Harry for so long. And we, um, he, he, he suggested it and, and we, we experimented with the idea and it, and it worked out really well. I think we learned a lot and what to do next time. The content of the class, of the master class, is, is a little different. See, uh, sometimes I've heard some drummers talk about it as doing, uh, as being like a circus monkey. Um, and I can't do that. I don't know. I don't, that's not, my background is different. Like I didn't go to Berkeley. I didn't study drums or music. I learned it all pretty much in house. And, uh, I had some great teachers on the bandstand and in recording studios. And so I come at it from a different angle. Right. You know what I mean? And that's kind of what it is that I was trying to convey. And uh, I think it worked. For example, I'm primarily known as a touring and recording drummer. Right. Uh, a lot of people have heard certain things that I've done and not heard other things that I've done. A lot of people, and, and, and it's advice, you know, it's all different variations of that. And I try to let people know because I think the business is different now. And there are a lot of variables and there's, it's kind of, there's no rules anymore. We're creating new up and coming guys are creating rules as they come up. And I just think that the basics of how you approach playing with other people is my, that's really what I'm trying to say is a lot of times you see a clinic and it's a guy sitting up there and talking a little bit and then doing a drum solo and talk a little bit, do another drum solo, mm -hmm. talk, do some incredibly complicated thing and then talk some more and then show somebody some something or other. And you know what I'm saying? I, I do. And I, and I saw a video of you playing peg and I'm just kind of wondering, so what was your approach? Did you just, did you perform, answer questions? Uh, yeah. So yeah. Uh -huh. here's the initial, here's the conceptually, this is what we wanted, to, what I wanted to do. Sure. Come out and Harry helped me a lot with this. And so did John to Christopher. Um, the, the, Harry, uh, John, if uh, anybody knows, John was the uh, president and my guy at, Zildjian for many, many years until he left the company and to just sort of do nothing but hang around and handle guys like me and Steve Gadd and Peter Erskine and stuff like that. And so John was uh, very involved with kind of putting this together as well with Harry and, and um, helping me along with what we were going to do. The idea was this. Drums and bass are like, for me, that's the spine of the rhythm section. The rhythm section is the spine of the band, the band spine of an orchestra. You know what I'm trying to explain here? As far as groove goes, which is what I'm primarily known to be right. as a player, 
I think. It's going to be between me and the bass player initially. Then, you know, my original um, inspiration and teacher was this guy, Dave Spinoza, who I grew up with, who's a guitar player. But David always you know, stressed bass and drums play together and we play with you guys and that's the way it goes. So I played a peg, a little bit of peg, mm-hmm. which there, I don't think there's a strong represent, recorded representation of that from the event because the mix of the drums and I was just playing for the track. Sure. But sure. the point I was making there was Chuck Rainey, the bass player on that record and I, we not only played on that record, but what people don't mean to understand is that Chuck and I had played on many records before played in Roberta Flack's band together on the road for over two years. And we knew each other's playing really well. Yeah. And uh, we knew how to communicate musically just looking at each other and just saying something like, Hey man, let's try this. Let's try that. And it was Chuck and I playing together on that. That's basically what I heard was me and Chuck. Yeah. Um, and then I think Don Gromnick played keyboards and that's the way the, the, the rhythm section expanded. Then I played another song that I had cut with James Taylor called hour that the morning comes, which is a bit of a departure from that. And it's more of an, of a integration of, rhythm section and melody drums. And I had always been pretty much taught that playing drums are not a melodic instrument for what I'm doing. Playing melody drums is not what you want to do. But on that particular track, I tried to incorporate James's melody because we learned it with James standing there with a guitar, singing it to us. And then everybody's scribbling out whatever kind of charts they wanted to make or just learning the, the song. And almost instantly when James started singing and playing, I just thought, oh, this is, I really hear something here. So that was the second tune I did. And then the third song I did was, the third thing we did was we just came up the last kind of minute, which one I wanted to do was a a song I had recorded on the Simple Dreams album with Linda Ronstadt called um, Tumbling Dice that originally the um, Rolling Stones had done and uh, Charlie Watts had played. And it was on that recording where the drums and bass play opposite patterns. And that's something that I first was uh, exposed to when I started doing the sessions on the West Coast with Wadi Wachtel and those guys. Wadi, who's a very, very musical guy, said to me, listen, instead of playing the bass drum with the bass, which is what I was always trying to do, I was right. always saying, okay, but the bass playing, I want to play what the bass player's playing. He said, why don't you play the opposite of the bass part? Uh-huh. And I resisted at first, and he reminded me, one, I was in Nashville, we were, I was there, Wadi was there, actually, as well. We were doing something together there. And, and, uh, and uh, he reminded me that I was not very receptive to it at all. <laughs> and I said, that's pretty funny because I'm using it as a... Uh, uh, as an example in this clinic. That's, that's great. Yes, 
Yes. <laughs> and he was cracking up about it. But it was on, on Tumbling Dice, like if the bass were playing bomb, 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 the drums would play bomb, 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 something like that, or yeah. bomb, 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 you know, just either some sort of a dotted figure or just the opposite pattern of the bass. And when, when Marty and I work together, it's a lot of times we'll discuss it and we'll come think of places where that's going to happen. And to this day. And the other thing is the reason I was in, actually the re initial reason I was going to Nashville is because Wadi had been in Japan um, uh, not long before the Nashville trip, a few months. And he texted me from, from, from Tokyo saying, hey, man, we have fans here. And <laughs> in the 80s or the late 70s or 80s, Wadi and I, had a band with Stanley Sheldon from Frampton Comes Alive and um, Dan Dugmore, who played with us and lives in Nashville. Right, right. Uh, he, we had, and who played with us in the Ronstadt and James Taylor albums and tours and on other records we had done. Um, we put a band together called Ronin and we did a tour in Japan with, it was a, big thing. We did stadiums with James Taylor, Linda Ronstadt, J.D. Souther, um, and Ronan. I can't remember if there was anybody else, but basically we played with everybody. You know, Russ Kunkel was there. Russ played, I think, with James or Linda. I can't remember who played with who, to be honest. I'll try to figure it out. <clears throat> and, Ro and Ronan played. And uh, when we got back, we were on a label that didn't support us because the head of the label who signed us as often happens, um, this is a terrible part of the business, but it's any business. It's television, it's film, it's our business. When you, so the head of the label signed us very, very, he was amped on, 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 on this band, Ronan. Mm -hmm. And um, right as we got started to do our record, or the record was released, released he left the label and took his, crew with him in comes a new head of the label and a new crew and there you go but that out goes the baby with the bath floor right. and so uh, the band we toured the states we had fun doing it but it wasn't sustainable at the time and we all were working so we went back to our day jobs where we played together anyhow <laughs> so um wadi said we've got fans here and then i said okay well let's what do you want to do he says, well, maybe we should do some gigs here. And then we got offered some gigs. And then Lottie said, let's get together and play to see if we actually can play together, <clears throat> which I thought was strange. But it was more about seeing if, um, if we could get the vocals to go for a whole session, for a whole two, two sets a night. Thank and uh, that's why we met up in Nashville. It was a reunion. We hadn't seen each other or talked in 40 years. So it was really great. And there was no, nothing bad happened to the band or anything. So the uh, end of the story is we, after we played for about 15 minutes, um, <laughs> we just all looked at each other and went, okay, so who wants to get in touch with the guys in Japan and say we're coming? And Wadi did that night. And that's what, that's how we all ended up in Nashville. That's, that's so Ronan was yeah. rehearsing in Nashville for, a gig that might be in November or October in Tokyo, in, in Japan and a little bit of a tour, a little mini tour of Japan. 
And um, and Harry said, why don't you do a master class? And that's what I did. There's been a couple things that you've talked about as, as I was digging deep into some interviews you've done. And uh, you, you talk about uh, when you were growing that's up. That's a scary place to go. <laughs> I enjoyed it, man. That's one of the my favorite things about doing this podcast is just I have a really good excuse to dig deep, and it's so easy to find these days information that I know I should have had for decades. But um, I really enjoyed it, and a lot of this research went into building a Spotify playlist and then just sticking that on and listening. It's It was a lot of fun this last couple of weeks. But you talk about... First of all, you know, there, there's a lot of information ab- about you uh, starting drums late, starting when you were 19 years old, um, borrowing a set of drums from a friend who was uh, being drafted in Vietnam, and he was gone for two years, and you had his drums, and by the time he came back, you were doing professional gigs, uh, your parents were dancers, you had this kind of innate sense of rhythm, and then... Um, David uh, Spinoza, you were talking about, just said, hey, man, if you ever decide to play drums, I want you in my band because you just have this innate sense of rhythm. So I'm, I'm kind of doing a quick summary of some of this stuff. But what I'm getting to is is you, you once talk about a, a friend of yours or somebody, uh, a peer in your age group that was just heavily into all the rudiments, uh, studied all the greats of the time. New Mark? No, no, not not Andy. Uh, somebody else who... I, I don't who know I if went it, to school with? I don't know if he was a friend, but he was he was somebody that studied and, and worked really hard to do this stuff, but wasn't getting the work. And you were getting the work, and you were just picking up the drums and just going. Do you remember this? Oh yeah. I feel like there's something about. I wish you could expand upon this, if if possible. This this thing that as drummers we're striving to we're striving to make ourselves employable, relatable to musicians, and do that thing that other musicians and producers and engineers and songwriters want from us to do. And you're a shining example of that. This maybe somebody that didn't have the experience this is that this other person had in learning and learning the rudiments and all this stuff, but brought something to the table that was so valuable. I remember exactly who you're talking about. It wasn't Newmark. It was another guy who I went to school with. I went to high school with, and uh, I I had not played drums while we were in high school. He was a drummer in one of the bands, and he was he was a very um, he was a very funny guy. He was. Uh, he came from where I came from, but I think he originally was from the Bronx in New York. And he was, he studied with Gene Krupa and Gene Krupa took him under his wing and he was that style of player. And part of his thing was he, I can still see the look on his face, the smirk. He would sit down with these uh, really kind of almost pencil thin drumsticks and he would play um, press rolls and and paradiddles and slamadiddles and ratamacues and whatever else you want to play. And uh, 
and then he would play. And when he would be playing with his, some sort of like, you know, high school rock and roll band of my, my close friends back then, he would play, but it was, he was a jazz drummer. That's what he should have been doing. This guy played like Joe Morello. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then you say, well, Rick, you know, somebody that wants to play like you, like you understood the playing with other people and making adjustments on recordings. Well, I did, but that's, that's the school I went to. That's the, the, the school I went to was the school of recording studio school where you go in and you just get, you know, if you're an hot seat. So I, I made that, I took a specific approach. This particular person did not. I remember that as a player back then, he was so, he felt so much better than everybody else he was playing with. And he may well have been yeah. that he just didn't take any kind of suggestions at all. He played the, what he wanted to play when he wanted to play it. And a lot of it would be, you know, you'd be listening to something like, uh, I want to hold your hand. And uh, I remember him just ragging on Ringo. I'm thinking to myself, what, what does Ringo have to do with your gigs? Like he was pissed because I was working. He was pissed because Ringo was the Beatles. I mean, it was, you know, it was one of those things. It's kind of comical, but it's really understandable. It's a bitterness that can get in your way. And I'm sure it got in his way. Um, but he's also a talented guy, but he is the kind of guy that should be a teacher. There's a perfect example of a guy that should be a teacher. Well, that's I, I guess it's, sense? Uh, yeah, yes, and um, but I, I not to push back on that concept, but I'm I'm kind of asking you this this like musical question, this musical approach as a, for lack of a better term, the clinician for the day that you were, to teach us something, especially those of us that sometimes have our heads buried in you know, stick control or, you know, looking up, going down that rabbit hole on YouTube and watching all these players, there's an opportunity for, for, for some enlightenment from somebody that's been on these, all these great recordings. Uh, so I hope I'm not coming off as argumentative, but I'm saying, no, Rick, please be the teacher. Argue away. I'm, I'm, I'm <laughs> completely open to the argument. I, I understand what you're saying. Yeah. I, so I'm making a statement about that, that approach. Okay, you're talking about stick control and everything else. Well, the guy, when I came up, I'll talk about Andy Newmark again. Andy Newmark and I were, were roommates when we were 19, 20 years old in, uh, in, in, in New York. We, we both had adjoining rooms at a hotel because it's all we could afford was something like $35 a week was our rent. We were playing in different bands because um, we were two drummers. We were very, very close friends. We were like brothers, and we just kind of talked to each other and had these same arguments. Andy was a stick control guy. Andy showed me so many things about rudiments that other people, you know, that I didn't learn from anybody else, but he was living next door to me. I mean, and we grew up. His father was, his family was great. My family, he used to come and hang out. When I left and was on the road, he'd be hanging out at my house with my parents. My, my, my mother would feed him. Um, I would go to his his house. His mother died when he was young, which was really sad. And 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 his father was this brilliant guy. And there were times when I was having a typical teen angst moment, and I would and Andy would be out on the road, and I would go to 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 Mamaroneck where Andy lived, and I would go to his his dad's. And I remember actually sitting in in the living room of his his father's of Andy's house where he grew up. Uh, 
sort of at his father's feet and his father was sitting there on his chair reading a book, but he put the book down and he had this sort of alpaca sweater on and I was going through a crisis of life and, and his dad just spent, I'm going to say hours, but I'm going to say probably a couple of hours talking to me like I was in a therapist's office. The, the most, just one of the greatest people in my early life. And he soon passed afterwards and Andy was on his own, but Andy and I would go through these same kind of arguments. Just what you said. Yeah. Like he's pissed. He's <laughs> pissed off because I can play on a, rec- on a session and he's, he's not, he doesn't understand why he's not. <laughs> and then there were other times when he's playing on stuff that I thought, man, why aren't I playing with Sly and the Family Stone? And Andy's in there killing it yeah, playing with Sly yeah. and the Family Stone. Right, right. All right. So back to your thing about stick control and all of that. Then I, then I, I, I meet Steve Gadd and Steve and I meet because, um, um, he came into town, Mike Maneri knew him, Tony Levin knew him. I knew those guys and in comes Steve Gadd to New York and, and Spinoza calls me and Mike Maneri calls me and they said, listen, there's a friend of ours coming to town. Spinoza, who I grew up with said to me, look, Rick, you're going to really like this guy. You got, you guys couldn't play more differently, but you're going to, he's a great guy. He's an unbelievable drummer. And I was scared to death because I had heard this about this guy for years. <laughs> and, um, and, here comes Steve. We meet Mike Meary calls and said, you know, you got to meet this guy, Steve Gadd. You guys will be, you'll really hit it off. And Tony Levin, same thing. And I'm like, Oh God, here I go. I've got to meet the guy that's going to stand me up against the wall. Cause we're gunslingers back then. And he's going to shoot me. So <laughs> I meet Steve who could do things that were seriously not done before. And he could not have been more, open more more uh, 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 he just said i love the way you play uh, steve i'm playing a two and four mm-hmm. you're playing every other note that there is known to mankind he goes yeah but the way you play two and four i love that and and, and he and i became really close friends i never ever once and this is a guy who could put all those other guys away Never once got one thing of criticism from him about my not playing all those notes. Was that and a we water played together a lot? Was that a like a watershed moment for you, like almost reinforcing this concept that like oh, this is what I do? It seems to be working. I'm not sure how, but then somebody that you grow to respect, and then all of a sudden tells you tells you this, and it kind of reinforces that. Is that? Well, we, we, I had the same, I was really, um, I had more respect for him. I, 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 yeah, it might've been a watershed moment, but I also got, you know, it wasn't like when Newmark and I would argue like you, what you brought up that being argumentative thing, Andy would say, it feels that feel is amazing. He goes, but I can do that feel too. And I say, well, go, you know, do it. And, and he certainly could. Um, it, but with, with, with Steve, it was one of those things where I thought, well, there's a guy from the other side of the tracks. I'm the guy from the other side of the tracks. He's a guy that's from the, the real school and I'm the guy from the other side of the tracks. And he says, Hey man, come on, join us. You're, you're, you're one of us. Mm. And, um, so that, in that way I felt, yeah, I, I guess so. 
But 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 back to what you were saying about the guy, the stick control thing, and all of that. Yeah. See, that's underlying when you go into a into a recording session. Now we're talking about recording sessions. You brought this. I think I'm going back to your question about um, being a recording musician and looking to do that that job. So let's say when I walk into a studio and recording situation, this is the way I look at it. And if I were teaching, this is what I tell people that ask me this question. For example, there was a couple of people who right now, a lot of people get stems sent to them. They have their own records. Everybody has their drums. Almost every drummer now has a recording set up in their house. They've got their drums there and they're mic'd. Yeah. And then they've got Pro Tools or Logic, and they somebody sends them stems. They download it. They play to it, send it back, and somebody pays them. I do that for my friends, but I like being in a room, and I also I understand that concept. And they said to me, when do you think it's your, your parts, you're done? And I said, when I think I'm done. Uh, you know, the other question is people send you things that they've programmed, okay? And they fall in love with their programmed part. And they, they send it to you to put real drums on, and they want you to play the programmed part. Well, sometimes it's just not possible to play that part and make it feel good. And you have to send, you know, you've got to be able to send it back and say, I'm not the guy for this job, which I've done, I'm sure, more than a couple of times. Okay. Um, but the way I go about recording sessions and a roundabout way of answering your question is I long ago from having been exposed to this stuff, I went to, I look at things as recording sessions as an acting job. And when I walk in and they play me a song or they hand me a chart, especially with charts. That's a script. This is a movie. This is a script. My job as a, as a musician slash actor is to interpret the notes on that page and create a character to play that part. That making any sense to you? It, it is, and and a lot of times you're if you're given a chart, it a lot of times it's it's either well in Nashville it's like a number chart or maybe it's a a horn arrangement, but it's it. I'm guessing you're talking about something that's not a specific drum chart or maybe a lyric sheet with chord changes. Is that what you're? Is that what you're saying? Yes. And it's yes, it's your I am. job. I am. It's your job to not only play drums but but compose in in a sense more than just interpreting say for the actor just reading the words but but really making something of the words and uh and that's why okay I, matt that's one way of looking at it however mm -hmm. there are lots of times when i walk in and guys have every note written out okay what do you do then and i do exactly what i just told you i look at it i try to play it the best i can mm -hmm. there are times when guys who were composers not drummers, they write drum parts that they just think are drum parts. And they, especially when they write fills. And you go, okay, do you want me to do this, play this verbatim? Um, 
yeah, play it that way. And you play it, and then you say, can I try something a little different? Nine times out of ten, that's they're going to say, yeah, go ahead. And you do. Yeah. Because a lot of times they don't write great parts. I remember, for example, there was a guy I used to do work for in Los Angeles who did a lot of commercials, and he had done television and movies. He was really a nice guy, and he was a very talented composer. He was more old school, and he wrote everything verbatim. And we were doing a session for him one day, and it just drive me crazy because it was the drum parts were terrible. I mean, there were some of the fills were just like they were actually made my teeth fall out. And and um, I remember I was on a session with Neil Steubenhaus, who who can read anything, and he was playing bass, and we played the part, and I'm playing this fill and this part and this fill, and I turned to Neil and I and Neil looks at me and we just rolled our eyes and. Neil, this is painful. He goes, I know. And I said, let's try something. So I said to the composer, listen, can you let us try to play this and just interpret what you've written? Oh, yeah, okay. Uh, Give it a try. So we played his part and did it correctly, and it stunk. We then played it like we were on a bandstand and Neil and I played a lot. We were in bands together, a lot of bands and we played together really well. We knew what we were going to do. Bang, bang, bang. We played it. Sounded great. He said, the and the talk back comes on and the guy says, yeah, I like my way better. <laughs> and I remember leaving there and never going to work for that guy again. I just he called a couple of times and I just said, I can't do it. It's painful. What was your reaction in that moment? I, my, 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 I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. It's obvious there's someone not using their ears uh-huh. there. And I remember turning to Neil and Neil and I walking out talking about going, how is it possible that he could think that that was a better performance than this? And it's because you're blinded by ego and what you want to hear. That's like those guys talking to me about someone sending them a drum part that they've programmed. And and a lot of people complain about this and want you to duplicate that drum part. Well, just use the drum part, use the, use the, um, the, the programmed part and, 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 and and accept the fact that that's, that's what you want to do. Why why torture somebody? (laughs) Um, I, but, but other times, uh, they use it as a guide. And what I'm saying is that that's the way I did it. I'm not saying that's the way it works all the time. Vinny Caliuto walks into a room. He worked for that same guy. He could walk in and out of that room, play it verbatim, perfectly, note for note, first time. Mm. It would feel great. He'd not be unhappy about it. I don't know whether he was happy or unhappy. And he'd leave and go to his next session. Vinny could look at something. Steve could look at something and read it perfectly. I remember years ago, you know, Steve used to get me in so much trouble. Steve, there was a, 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 a trombone player. He died recently. His name is Bill Watrous. He was a great jazz trombone player. And he had a big band in New York. And, um, and uh, Steve was playing drums in that big band. And Steve was there. Is, a, is a phenomenal big band drummer. Um, as are a lot of guys that are, you know, uh, Vinny and uh, Keith Carlock and on and on and on. Right, They're all, right. Those guys can play with anybody. And so I'm a, I was a good R&B band drummer, you know, 12 piece 
six-piece funk band. That's where I cut my teeth. So anyway, Bill <laughs> calls me and he said, listen, Steve wants you to sub for him at these rehearsals we're doing for this gig. I said, Billy, I, I can't do that. He goes, no, it's no problem. Don't worry about it. And, and, and it's big band stuff, real big band stuff. I mean, every note written. And, and um, Steve did it perfectly. So I said, no, no, I, I can't do that. And Steve calls me. He goes, Rick, go. It's so easy. Don't worry about it. You can do this. And then Billy uh, Watchers calls me again. And he's, come on, Rick, just do it. We're going to do the rehearsals. And blah, blah. So I went to Carol Music. I think it's where the rehearsals were in New York. This is back in the day. And uh, I sat down and I start playing these charts, which were crazy, complicated, big pinch. <laughs> and Bill watches. And I am just, just fumbling all over the place. And Billy comes up to me and the whole band, they're all guys. I, most of the guys in the band I knew, they're all getting a kick out of it. Me scuffling through these things. And I could mark time through most of the things. But all these big band hits that were coming, they happened. Well, I, they would happen before I got to that part on the chart. <laughs> <laughs> before I could figure out what the figure was, they had already played it. That's so... Um, we're taking a break and, and Watchers comes over to me and he says, Rick, I got to tell you something funny. He goes, Steve is, he reads everything perfectly. Never makes a mistake. I said, thanks, Bill. I was really hoping you would tell me. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so he says, uh, he goes, uh, um, you know, we were doing a rehearsal one day and all of a sudden we're playing and it's smoking and right in the middle of track, in the middle of, of the, uh, the song, Steve's all over the place. He's just like off, like an eighth note. He's just off the whole way. He's playing different from the rest of the band. And, and, and Watchers said, and I went over to him and I went, ah. That was terrible. That's the first time I ever heard you screw up right here. And he points to the chart. And this is no lie. This is Watchers is telling me this. Right here. And he looks. And where there was a quarter note, a drop of water had sort of put a little flag on one of the notes. And it was an eighth note. Oh, wow. And Steve played a, an eighth note off the rest of the band. Of the rest of the song. Oh my gosh! <laughs> and then I said, I and then I, I talked to Steve about it, and I said, don't ever send me on one of those things again. And he just laughs about it because Steve's a practical joker. Half of it was him knowing I was going to be <clears throat> making a fool of myself, and half was he knew that I could I could get through it, but I wasn't going to take the gig away from him for sure. Oh my gosh. I want to get into something about the differences between what you describe as Gad and Vinny going in and, and reading down and, and moving on and, and kind of doing that type of session playing. And then this personality that can be brought to the session or the gig or the bandstand um, that certainly those guys do with, you know, the, 
with with great degree, but also it's something that you do very well, and it's something that I think many people that have hired you over the years recognize. You've talked about drummers sometimes not having a personality in their approach uh, or developing a personality that is uh, employable. Is there a way that a drummer can, whether they're a beginner or an experienced drummer, begin to develop something that makes them more employable in the same sense that you were and have been from the beginning? Uh, it's a really good question. And the answer is, I, I don't think I can answer that. I don't think that there's a, I, I don't know. I really don't know. Some people are so schooled. Like look at guys like, um, Keith Carlock, mm-hmm. who, who, when I first saw Keith Carlock play, when I was doing Groove All-Stars uh, in Los Angeles, they, they said, there's this guy, He's really good, um, and he, we'd like him to be in the, in the show. I said, sure, of course. So Keith Carlock comes and he plays a James Brown song, and I cut my teeth on James Brown songs. And he played either Out of Sight or Papa's Got a Brand New Bag or one of those classic James Brown songs. He's, the way he sits behind the drums is, is like, he looks like he's playing in the Beach Boys in the 60s. He, he just, you know, he's that underhanded player, his snare drum faces up towards him. He's, he was so interesting. And I walked away from that, that, that gig saying that that was the most inventive. That was the most creative, um, interesting drummer I've seen in years. Wow. Playing in years. Mm -hmm. So he, he's a guy who can read anything, play anything. And he brings his personality to a session. Now, is that personality going to work for everybody? No, it's not. My personality is not going to work for everybody. Right. It's, it's the question you're asking is, is it answerable because what you bring to the table is only as good as what the person you're working for accepts. Some people recognize your, what you're doing and others don't. I remember, for example, part of this is, I remember when I was uh, doing sessions every day in New York City, going back and forth from L.A. to New York, and there were people, I would work on an album that was a studio album. So it was guys that would hire studio players. And so I would get called to come in and play three songs, okay? And there are three rock and roll songs, okay? Yeah. Then there's a couple of songs that are, Ballady, maybe brushes, something like that. They're going to call some other drummer to do that. Okay. And then on an, on uh, another kind of song, maybe a, a jazz type thing or something like that, they're going to call same producer. Going to call somebody else to play on that. Mm-hmm. Now, there are other producers and artists that would call me in to play the brush songs with brushes, and call someone else to play the rock and roll songs. Then there's other producers who call me to play the jazz songs and call someone else to play the, the rock and roll songs or the funk songs. It didn't make any sense to me, but it's what they're exposed to that you've done for them before. And the lack of other people's 
ability to accept the fact that you can do more than one thing. Mm-hmm. Like, um, there are just guys that, that you think can do one thing and they can do a lot of different things. And I was, I, as a, when you're working in this business, you are at the mercy of what your reputation or what that particular person thinks your value is. You had mentioned once in an interview that drummers are the ultimate sidemen. Is that related to what you're saying now? I don't know in what context I used it. You'd have to give me the, the rest of the context. Of- Just as we're so reliant on other people to hire us, uh, you're going to not see a drummer out on a gig uh, by himself doing a solo gig. Right, yeah. Um, <laughs> but just in what you're saying about um, you're reliant upon the producer or whoever to make that call. Um, yeah. It just made me think about, you, you know, how we create longevity in our careers. Right. Um, that's, that's yeah. that, you know, that's, that's the networking thing. I'm the worst networker <laughs> on the planet. I just... It's just not been my thing. And I pulled myself out of the business so many times that I, I, I can't even count. And, and that's a different thing. You're talking about there's business and then there's playing and there's talent playing and there's talent for business. There are guys that are incredible networkers. They walk around with their book and their phone in their hand all the time. And 90% of the calls that they make are to clients, quote unquote. I don't have a client. I don't have one client, not one. Um, I have friends that sometimes ask me to play on their stuff and it ends up being not really a lucrative thing. And it's not like it used to be in the old days where you had radio registry in New York city or service in Los Angeles, where you would get a call from them saying you had four calls for sessions that day for that week, or you had 10 calls that week for the following week, or you had 20 calls that week for the following week, which happened all the time. It's not like that even remotely anymore. Um, and, and you are at the mercy and then you were a side man. You're, you know, you're, you're a side man. A lot of guys made a lot of money and that was what it was all about back then. For me, it was drove me crazy. Doing 15 or 20 jingles in one week in New York got me to leave New York for a while to just, get my head straight. I couldn't take it anymore. And, 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 um, and then, so I had to go on the road to play live and do things like that. But, but, um, you, you're, you're right. You rely on the phone to ring or you rely on yourself to network to, to, to get stuff done. Nowadays, I really don't know how it's done. There are guys who I have a lot of respect for that are really good drummers that are, that are that you know that make they make their calls. They're really personable guys. They're very talented musicians, and they keep themselves working all the time. Yeah. They get themselves on airplanes, like I did going to Nashville, and they they they, they pick up the phone and I, I I pick up the phone and I call Wadi and I say, hey, that was fun. Yeah, and Wadi will call me and say, hey, that was really fun. Let's do some more of this and. You know, that's the extent of my networking. He's a really, really close friend of mine. And uh, we do things like that. But as far as the business goes, it's, it's a crazy business out there.
last two years, my brother Jerry and I, uh, and this is all all because of Jerry. Um, <laughs> Jerry put together this band, and we played July and August Wednesday nights on Martha's Vineyard. Yeah, and it was great, but it's grueling. I mean, it's like we're out there playing two sets a night, kind of shows in a in a restaurant. And it's really great. The, the great part is, and you know, Jerry's a real, real taskmaster. He's let's rehearse all day and all night, and let's do a long sound check in a restaurant. And 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 even the owner of the restaurant said, "I've never seen a band do this before." And <laughs> we would fill the place, so we tore the place up, up, and 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 the band sounded unbelievable. Jerry Jerry hooked up with this really great singer on the vineyard that was fun for me two drummers jerry and i both play drums jerry has me singing lead on some songs which i really didn't want to do and he wouldn't take no for an answer he said you're singing here choose this song this song or this song you're gonna sing and he sings and then it's um um uh, um the uh, couple of the other guys in the band sing we have a ball doing it that was recent yeah, that was the last two summers. Okay. Joanne Cassidy is the, by the way, is the female singer. She's okay. one of the most talented singers I've worked with in a long time. That's that's awesome, man. What kind of occupies your time now? I know you've done some composing, you know, film and television, the the rehearsal you had here in Nashville to do to do some more work and different things like that. But what 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 kind of keeps you busy these days? Well. With me, my attention span is like a four-year-old's. Um, I so I start to do different things. I'll, I'll go away for a while and not work on anything, which is pretty much what I'm doing right now. Although I have a little workstation down here, I could write. Um, but okay, the past I, I, I started composing for television and for film. Yeah. I did that and uh, still played. And then played drums on a lot of stuff that I did, but I had no problems bringing in other guys if I was producing something and <clears throat> and wanted guys to play drums on it or stuff like that. Because sometimes I like to hear other guys play. Sure. And um, and uh, so I I did that, and then this I took a little time off, and I've been working writing mu- writing music for this friend of mine has a puppet. Um, an educational puppet series that he's doing. And it's, he has a clown puppet, which is kind of odd because people associate clowns with serial killers and scary things, but he has a clown puppet named Mr. Clown. And uh, so I write, I've been writing 90% of the music for that for years. And it's gotten really kind of serious. And this last year I started writing a children's album. So I was working on a children's record and I'm going to go back to LA to finish that hopefully next month. And I've um, so been writing songs for that really kind of interesting and fun because you could do anything. I can write reggae music. I wrote ska. Um, my brother Jerry wrote a song uh, that's just, everybody's going crazy for it that they, that they recorded. And i redid reworked a bunch of it and put these um the clown singer on and then this other character this other puppet character 
on it. And uh, <clears throat> it's about bullying called Don't Bully Me, which is really great. And so I've been working on a children's record. I'm going to go back and maybe write some stuff with the guys in the band to do another Ronin album, which would be really great to do. I'd love to do that. And uh, playing more. Gonna, we're just actually deciding whether or not we're going to do another summer with the Marauder Brothers Band, which is pretty much up to me to, to call the guy and see if they want to. You know, they, they, the the owners of the place where we play, they, they sold the venue, and I'm just going to see if they're going to do um, any more music there. And oddly, very sadly, on Martha's Vineyard, they had the greatest venue to play, which is the hot tin roof that turned into flatbreads. They don't have any music there anymore. It's the one of the best clubs to play at, and it's a great venue, but it's impossible because it it's just they make it so difficult for musicians. It's an island, so you got to get the band there on the on on boats or planes. It's no way of just driving up and doing a gig and then driving away. You're mm-hmm. there, right. you're there for the night. You're two days at one day or two days at least, and. And so that venue is closed off to us. So it's just restaurants and we're having a ball um, playing the gig. So that might happen. And that's what my plans are for the, for right now is to I'm trying to think if there's anything else. I had a couple of projects going on in Los Angeles that I have to go out there for and um, hopefully write some more, you know, write and record some more. And what do you write with? What's, what the, what's your instrument of choice? for writing and composing? I just sit behind a keyboard and I, 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 I pound out the best I can. Mm-hmm. And I then, you know, I'll do all the bass parts, drum parts, keyboard parts. That way I'll play. I don't program drum parts. I play them into a, um, pads, drum cat, Yamaha, yeah, uh, yeah. electronic I'll do that. Then when I record them, I go in to my studio and I replace the parts. But they're parts that I played with my hands with sticks <laughs> and my feet. You know what I'm saying? I do. It's not like I did it. I didn't pull up some some weird and I have nothing against it. You could play with that. But don't pull up some weird thing that an octopus played. Uh or Vinny played, and then say, "Here, you do that. Yeah, uh, go get an octopus or Vinny to do it. Right. <laughs> um, that's the way I do it. And then I bring in guys to play the parts. Like I'll go back and I'll I have I did the guitar parts. That's the instrument I played the worst, and I played them all pretty badly. Yeah. But that's the one I play the worst. And I'll just call Wadi, and Wadi will come in and do it, or Spinoza will do it, or I'll send it to Dave, or I'll send it out to Joe Carroll in Hawaii, or friends of mine, and they'll just you put the parts on and they'll send it back to me or we go into a room. And with, with Ronan, we're just going to go in a room and we're going to record. We're going to go in like a band, which I'm really, really looking forward to, especially after uh, the, the gig and after the um, playing with them in Nashville. It was like falling off a log. We just had so much fun playing and singing and, and going over these old songs and trying to remember parts. And everybody kind of, remembered a lot of what they did and it was it was fun that's so that's what i'm doing right now if an interesting project comes up i'll lean towards that if an interesting writing project comes up i'll lean towards that 
It's it's just something that whatever is interesting. Oh, I'm going to do, what am I talking about? In about a week, I'm doing a gig in Florida with uh, some of the guys from the um, the uh, Marauder Brothers Band in uh, Boca. I think I'm doing a gig in Boca, and then I might do a gig up in Jupiter later in the month uh, playing live, oh, that's, that's um, which will be fun. Um, John Zeman and Zoe Zeman, the guitar player and bass player from the Marauder Brothers Band, are down in Florida, and they wanted me to come and do a couple of gigs with them, and I'm, I think I'm going to do that on, on April 8th. Is that a public so public a, gig or a private thing? Yeah, 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 yeah. It's okay. a you know, it's probably like a just a sort of like a gig like you did last night. Yeah, yeah. Just to play. So but, I'm, I'm I'm looking forward to that. I know that my listeners are going to want to know some details about a couple recordings that you've done. You talked about an uh, hour that the morning comes that you did at your clinic. And I think that that has a lot to do with the, that inspired the question of just personality and what was brought to that. There's an interesting story behind that, that I know you've told, but I'd love for you to share that story about the creation of that drum part, the pushback from that drum part yeah. session. Could you share that with us? Yeah, sure. Um, so we did the, the, uh, the, the, when we were doing the record, when we did that, that track, I really took some chances. And this is James, obviously. just to clarify, this is James Taylor's record, uh, Dad Loves His Work. Dad Loves His Work, mm -hmm. the album, Hour That The Morning Comes is the song, and the performance, the performance, <clears throat> I loved the song when James did it, when he played it, I right away just said, I know what I want to do here. And I started doing it um, and no pushback. The band, everybody loved it and just was into it. And it's a bit unusual because this is a mostly backbeat organization of guys and artists. So did it. Peter Asher was the producer who was a very open guy. This guy is very, very, very musical very open to trying things, not, not there's zero tension in the room with him generally. So we did it. We cut it. It sounded great. We're moving on, doing whatever we're doing. And um, a friend of ours, a good friend of all of ours, and still a great friend of all of ours, who was in James's <clears throat> original band, Danny Korchmar, comes into the session and they play him a song and he goes up to James and he goes, James, this is a great song. There's one problem. Uh, Ricky's drum part is all over the place. You can't, you got, you can't leave it like this. And of course, guys in the band are just minding their own business. Peter Asher was, he was adamant about keeping it the way it was, saying it was really a special performance, and he recognized it as a special performance. And, James <clears throat> doubted it. So James wanted to recut it and we recut it. And that was one of those moments that had happened to me before where I just said, shit, <laughs> um, here we go. And then I think Cooch came in, it might have been the next day, that day or the next day, we recut the song and I did the best I could. I followed the direction that they 
gave me. And it was one of those things where we were talking about earlier, you know, it was one of those things I tried to put my personality on there. It, 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 it I really liked what happened. I, I was, I, I really liked the part. I was really proud of the part. I honestly, I was like, this is what I, that's the way I want to play the drums. Yeah. And, um, so we cut it again, straight ahead. Bang, bat, and I played it the best I could. <clears throat> I didn't phone it in. I just tried to make it feel as good as it could. The end of the session, Peter turned to everybody and said, okay, we're going back to the original. And, and James was okay with it. He agreed and he let it stand. And I was over the moon. And, you know, <clears throat> it was nothing... Cooch is a really good musician, an incredible songwriter, let's face it, and and a really great musician and a great producer, and I've worked with him, and it was his, his opinion was it didn't work. If he was the producer on that record, that would never have come to light, and he wouldn't have been wrong. It still would have been great. It's just an opinion, a matter of opinion, and who has the final say? And James let 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 uh, Peter make that decision for him and accepted it and moved on. And James is not a pushover by any stretch. Okay. James is very opinionated. He, he knows what he wants. And <clears throat> he's got Steve Gadd playing with him right now all the time. Oh, I saw Steve, him a couple years I don't ago. Know yeah. Yeah. Um, me too. And it's great. So so that's what happened on that session and it was really unique for me because that was one of my favorite drum parts in one of my favorite songs and i think that the drum part made the song even better my opinion yeah it might not be anyone else's opinion but it's my opinion it wasn't a hit song by any stretch but i noticed when guys like carlos guzman posted it i think i think that maybe um, you know, because I had told Harry about it. I think maybe Harry told Carlos or someone told Carlos Guzman and Carlos Guzman posted it. And Carlos got a lot got a lot of followers who, who share and all of a sudden that thing, that song blew up on the internet because of that. And 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 I and I remember saying to someone, James should send me a royalty check because <laughs> that that album didn't do very well. The Dad Loves His Work album didn't do very well and it relit um, some interest in that record. I'm sure he sold some more records. Maybe I should get a piece well, of that action, which of that's, course that's right. You know, we that's don't right. Get. Promoting it. Well, can you think of yeah. other songs like that? Uh, maybe that you've recorded or other recordings that you know of other drummers that like, man, people should hear this. They, they don't know this song. You know, that's hard. The ones that are most notable are Peg. You know, a lot of the Steely Dan stuff we did. I really liked like the first song I ever did with Steely Dan was "Don't Take Me Alive." I wanted to ask you about that that one. Um, I wanted to ask kind of the producing style of uh, Donald and Walter with you in the studio. On on "Don't Take Me Alive," there's this broken hi hat, very sparse part. Do, do you remember your approach to that? Was there direction given from the guys about what you were? To do or did you do There's that? A perfect example mm -hmm. of that one. We walked out. I forgot who arranged it, but everybody had charts. Uh, I think it was the first time I played with Larry Carlton, 
And um, and I think we did it. I know we did it at A and R Seventh Avenue in in New York. And um, I I remember the, the chart was written, but it was like really well done, and those hits might have been in there. Okay. And then we just played. Everybody just played what they played. I mean, I don't think anybody wrote that guitar intro for for um for Larry Carlton. Larry did Larry play that? And I I don't know. It it was just that was one of those days where it was so simple. We were just I played so simply on that on that record. And it came out really well. Yeah. But I remember, I, I remember going in there, and, and, and Elliot Shiner. I originally had said I was working so much at the time, and I, I really didn't care who was calling. It could have been the Beatles. I was burnt out, and I said I'm not, I, I wasn't going to go do it. And then Elliot Shiner called me, who was a really good friend of mine, and said, "You idiot! Steely <laughs> Dan just called you to play on their record. Excuse me. You are going to be there." Just show up, and and I just said, okay, I'll see you there. That was it. <laughs> I originally had said I, I wasn't going to do it, so I, I show up, and um, the thing I remember about that was we run it down. I walk in, I scope set up whatever drums I had there, and <clears throat> we run it down. And I remember Donald coming over to me and saying, "Hey, oh, it's really nice to meet you." We really like your work, and uh, we're really glad that you could make the session. And I'm, yeah, yeah, kid, okay, fine, sure. And um, we start running the song, and Donald sits down, plays the piano, and sings it. And I didn't even get halfway through the song, and I just said, what is this about? And Donald sat down and told me all about the writing of that song, that he and, and Walter had moved to to L.A., and every every week there was some guy hole up in that. This is back when this was happening all the time. Some guy shooting it out with the cops. I just thought these guys are, they really are special. Um, and that's, you know, that, that's how that thing came about. We just played, we just interpreted the charts, but that was, that's a perfect example of what I was telling you earlier about, the script and being a character. And that was as simple a character as I could play. <clears throat> but I know that during the breakdowns and during those pushes, those fills, there was mm -hmm. certain ways you could play those fills and those pushes. And I chose to do them the way I did wide open, not play through them or around them, play them. Right. You know what I mean? But time never and stops. Groove never stops. You're, you're still... No, no, never. Never. Uh -huh. Never. But those guys have a way of writing that's, <clears throat> that's really uh, doesn't make that difficult. Um, sure. You listen to Babylon Sisters, what Bernard Purdy does, and that whole groove, and what mm. um, Rob Mounsey did in the vocal arrangements and the, and the, uh, <clears throat> the horn arrangements on that which were done by Rob Mounsey and Bernard Purdy played drums on it. That's just one of the most special tracks ever on a, um, on a, on a Steely Dan record. Right. Right. 
you you mentioned there's a there's a cool documentary about Peg on YouTube, and you talk about some of the nuances that were caught in your hi hat plant. Yeah. You, so you're you're crediting the engineer for catching something that maybe wasn't normal for the time. Yes, I didn't love the the drum sounds that they were getting in um, in New York at the time. It was kind of driving me crazy. And in that studio, for example, when you went to A and R Seventh Avenue, there was a set of drums there, and I would bring my cymbals and snare drum, like you said. I had a I had a on that session I had a Slingerland snare drum that I had put. I had taken apart and put it was a it was a Buddy Rich's old snare drum and I took it apart and I put Ludwig snare throws on it and uh, a Canasonic head on it and I used it on some records back then and I used it on Peg mm. and it got a great sound. Elliot <clears throat> got it to snap and do exactly what I wanted it to do and it sounded exactly the way it sounded and he also captured the nuances in the, in that open and close hi-hat part, which I had played that kind of groove thing a lot. And with Chuck and I doing it together in the studio, it was like we had just gotten off stage doing it. Because Chuck and I used to do that kind of, we just, I used to call it like whisper jet stuff with, the, with uh, Roberta Flack. Um, <clears throat> and Roberta, that band, Roberta's band was crazy, crazy good. Yeah. So he caught all of that stuff. I mean that 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 song's really all about that groove and that infectious um, chorus with Mike McDonald. So yeah, it's, it it's, was great. It's amazing. But I was going to tell you there are some other things that, <clears throat> like the John Tropez records that we did with with Steve and I playing together. Okay. There's some good stuff on that. Somebody sent me some live versions of some stuff that Steve and I did. <clears throat> with John Trope that they recorded at McKell's back in the old days. Boy, those gigs were unbelievable. I mean, we could hardly stand up at the time. <laughs> but there were there were some... The, that place was a small, just a little, tiny venue uh, in um, <clears throat> the Upper West Side of New York. And people were standing listening out in the street we that's, were that's awesome i remember playing one gig there where we had to open the back door it was so packed and steve and i were in the excuse me we're in the back of the you know we we're playing where we play and the back door was open and i'm looking at people out in the street behind me <laughs> to my right just dancing and stuff that band was unbelievable and you know there were some tracks we cut years ago. Tom Scott did an album that called The Dock Is In, I believe. And um, we cut those tracks in Los Angeles. There are some there are some tracks, rhythm tracks, with me playing with Anthony Jackson that were ferocious. And I'm going to try to track them down for the next time I do one of these okay. clinics or one of these classes and I'm going to try to have one of those play one of those to show what playing what a drummer with a great bass player oh, yeah. can sound like yeah and I mean Anthony Jackson Will Lee Neil Steubenhouse Tony Levin I'm really Chuck Rainey how lucky am I to have been have played a lot with all of them that's amazing I don't know if you know who Anthony Jackson is but he's probably oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, one of the sure. best 
oh my god that guy's yeah. good I'm, I'm such a fan of tony levin too man he's just amazing oh my god tony well tony and i <clears throat> we played we were on the road together with herbie mann back in the early 70s we went to australia together with herbie we went if we went to europe with herbie we, it was so crazy pat Rebelo, tony levin me a guy named armin halberian and whoever Jeff Miranoff or whoever would play guitar that would <laughs> Sam Brown, I think, did one tour with us. Um, <clears throat> it was an interesting band. But um, yeah, those are great experiences. I'm, I'm all, uh, when I do these interviews, I start to remember things and I realize <laughs> how fortunate I am. That's amazing. What, what was it like doing double drums with, with Steve? Did you guys have to work things out? It was, <laughs> it was great. It was really great. The only time we worked things out was when we had a disagreement. <laughs> was when what? And we didn't have too many disagreements, but I remember sometimes uh, we always got along so, so well. I mean, we just laughed most of the time. But once in a while, you know, you're playing two drums and it's intense and you've got two intense players. And sometimes when I would, overdo it a little bit he would turn and look at me and go what are you doing <laughs> and i what what are you doing um and but we worked things out we we just would listen to each other the thing about steve and i playing i think john trope talked about it was i think we listened to each other so much steve is god it's it's so much like acting i gotta tell you he's so generous as a musician <clears throat> Oh, we, you, he listens. There are other guys that just want to beat you. He doesn't, he wants to play with you. Mm -hmm. You want to, so you, you know, if you do something, he'll answer, he'll do something and you answer. That's the way to play. <clears throat> Playing with my brother, Jerry is really great as well. I mean, I didn't realize how comfortable it was going to be. And we sat down and it's, pretty comfortable. The only time it gets a little uncomfortable is when he either stops playing or he reaches over because <clears throat> we're so close in that club. He starts playing his parts on my drums while I'm <laughs> playing at the same time. And because Jerry's a wild man. But yeah. playing with Steve it was always great. And you know, when we did Groove All-Stars in those gigs at the, the NAM show in, in LA. Um, we did them for about eight or 10 years. I can't remember how many we did. We did a lot and they were, they were really highlights for me. Uh, and when Steve was able to make it, when he wasn't on the road, he would do it. He would come and do it. And when he did, invariably he and I would play something together. And I remember once <clears throat> there's this song I just love. I think it's one of the best drum performances ever. And it was Jim Gordon and, um, <clears throat> and Jim Keltner playing on, um, uh, uh, Joe Cocker Live, Mad Dogs and Englishman record, where they did uh, <clears throat> uh, Send Me a Ticket for an Airplane, The Letter. Oh, The Letter. Yeah. The letter. Mm -hmm. yeah. <clears throat> and it was so great. And Steve and I are going to play it together. Okay. And he says to me, you know, <laughs> um, let's go out there and play really soft. I said, okay. <laughs> yes. I said, I'll play the hot rods, blastics, no hot rods. He says, uh, 
I'll play, I'll play plastics. And I said, well, I'll play brushes. And he said, I'm going to play nothing. It was to the point where we were standing out there and we were almost not playing anything. And it's the song that's all about drums slamming through. And it was great. We ended up, I think we both ended up playing brushes on it. And it's those kind of challenging, weird conversations that we have that make it fun to play with Steve. This episode is brought to you by DrumSellers.com, the niche marketplace where drummers, drum retailers, and drum manufacturers buy and sell their gear. List your drums for sale for free, and the only fee is 4% if it sells. Simple. Check out all the new used vintage and custom drum eye candy at DrumSellers.com. One last thing about the, about the the Steely Dan documentary, right at the beginning that has you, and you, you, you say this thing, and I'm trying to figure out, there must have been more to it that, that they didn't air on that documentary, but, but you, you said uh, back, in that, back in that day, if you had a club in your right hand and a club in your left hand and clubs for feet, you could play. Well, yeah. What did, you mean, what did you mean by that? I meant that there wasn't a lot of finesse going on. Okay. I don't know if I could be clearer than that. It wasn't finesse playing that you saw. Mm-hmm. It was a lot of just, there was a lot of bombing around on the drums. There were, there were songs were just, just, <clears throat> I was trying to explain the fact that when you go into a studio, no matter what you played, it ended up sounding like boom, bap, boom, bap. We're on, we're on the Steely Dan album. Yeah. And Asia in its entirety, you have Steve playing Asia, the song Asia, where you got, all of this incredible stuff going on and that phenomenal solo and um, the, 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 the musicality of it and, and Peg where it's so simple, but it's so complicated. People still talk about that groove that both mostly talk about Chuck and me playing that, that, uh, that all got to be heard on that record. And some of the other songs on the record that I don't have in front of me, but I mean, it was, uh, um, it was different. It was different. It was like, like the hour that the morning comes, for example, I hate right. to go back to like the no, early sure. songs I did, yeah. but they're just loaded with little things. It's like when Steve Gadd did, uh, the Chicoria record with, Anthony Jackson and they did Night Sprite and Leprechaun on the Leprechaun album. Oh my God, come on, please. Somebody <laughs> tell me that that's two humans playing. Right. Incredible. It, and and it, it was different. There was a lot of sessions you went to. Like at that time, there was a lot of disco stuff, which at a certain point I had to stop playing where it was just, you know, opening and closing the hi-hat. Yeah. Oddly enough, on one of the Ronin songs, I play, but sort of a clave beat against it with the bass. Bass and I playing exactly together, like don 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 don, almost a Latin figure against, and and it turned out to be great. And that's a sort of an amalgam of disco meets. Latin meets rock and roll in a rock and roll band. Yeah, yeah. And they let, you know, to their credit, Waddy and, um, and Dan Dugmore let, let Stanley and I do it. And, uh, on a song called the runner. And 
Steve took that disco thing the next level when he did the Michael um, uh, Mike McDonald song uh, "You Belong to Me" on Carly Simon's record, and he played this sort of disco beat with his left hand, played downbeats on the on the bell of the cymbal, played nice. this funk thing with his right foot, and with his left hand and and left foot played disco against that at the same time. Then I had to learn that friggin' part and go on the road and play it with Carly. <laughs> and I would call Steve and say thanks <laughs> for making my life miserable. <laughs> That's awesome. You know, that groove works really well on certain traditional country, that four-on-the-floor Waylon grooves that people use a lot, especially in like that traditional, quote-unquote traditional country throughout the 70s and stuff like that. That's a, And speaking of Waylon, because a lot of times uh, somebody will call out, uh, if I'm doing a gig where we're doing a lot of traditional country, they'll say, it's a Waylon groove. And you have Waylon in your credits as far as, uh-huh. uh, do you remember working with him or what that session was like oh, for, I sure do. for our Nashville listeners? He was, that was a highlight for me. Yeah? yeah. I did a Waylon album. I don't remember the name of the album I did, mm-hmm. but I have to say, Jimmy Bowen, I believe Jimmy Bowen produced it. It was a while ago. I think it was, I think it was me and Leland Squad. And mm-hmm. Waylon could not have been a nicer more talented, open, appreciative, great human being. You never, <clears throat> I, I don't know if you ever met Waylon, no, but they could, his whole, his whole, everybody that worked with him, for him, just the nicest people. And, and, and so when I did this, um, I was a musical director of the Les Paul special years ago, 80s or 90s. And uh, I called Waylon and I said, listen, would you come up and do a song to represent country? And he did. And he brought Jesse too. And Jesse did one. He did one. Now, the problem, the sad thing was, I think that they didn't use the Jesse Coulter song only because of time. Um, And it was an hour special, I think, for Cinemax at the time. But Waylon could not have been more gracious, nicer, and so great to work with. And just really great. Yeah. You know, you would come in and we, what I loved about Nashville was when we did these records, everybody, if you were doing somebody's record, they were singing in the, in the booth, they were singing the song while you're playing. Yeah. 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 I mean, was there certain country nuances or things like that, that somebody would uh, give you production direction on or anything like that or was it we've we're bringing you in to do your thing i never i didn't get much blowback from anybody i Mm -hmm. um the guys in the band would say more the more like the guys in the band like um would would turn and say oh this is going to be one of those running uh running uh, two beat country kind of groups um I'm trying to remember who the guys I used to work with. Matt Rawlings was a kid. It's another keyboard player who was really good. Do you remember the the time period? Uh, you say Matt Rawlings was a kid, so I'm guessing maybe. Matt was really young. 
Yeah. I, I, I can't remember the time period because I get okay. I don't pay attention to that. I think it was in the in the early nineties, late eighties. People ask me so many times, okay, my, my, my son, my nephew is a musician. Do you have any advice for him? Or I'm, you know, ask me, what do you think about trying to get work? I'm the worst guy to ask about that. <laughs> Networking is the only thing I could say. But mm-hmm. I, I was, you know, it was such a different time. When I came up, I was doing gigs. Guy said, you should play the drums. I started playing drums. I started playing in his band. People came and heard us and hired me for other bands. And then went up and up and up that pyramid until I was playing in New York City, like seven days a week in New York City, uh, six sets a night till three and four in the morning, getting home when it was light out and enjoying my life. And I'm not even a night person. And then someone else hears you there and says, can you play on my R&B record? Because right. I was an R&B band then sure and you start doing recordings and this goes really fast bang 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 well now it's not like that outside of nashville it's pay pay to play you want to play in a club in los angeles you usually you have to pay the club or what what sense does that make oh you want to showcase your band you want to showcase your band the the industry has turned it into all right if you want to play you want to entertain people you have to pay us so you can showcase your band. For what? So that another club owner says, hey, you want to showcase your band in my place next week? Pay me money and you could come. It's ridiculous. The lowest form, I think, the lowest form of, 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 of insult would be to say, you have to play, you have to pay, mm-hmm. or we're not going to pay you to come in my place where you're going to bring in X amount of people that are going to drink X amount of drinks. And I'm going to make X amount of dollars and you got to pay me to come and do that. You know what? Keep your gig. (laughs) Maybe that's why everyone's moving to Nashville. I don't know. We get a lot. Well, it seems like you're working. Nashville seems to be paying guys, but you know what? Some, somebody will come in and figure a way to take it away from, from somebody else. There's always somebody figure. There's always somebody trying to figure out how to take something away. I think it just—it just—it feels like you know things change when you look back at the history of the music business and how it's evolved. It it makes you wonder, like, how can I anticipate the next change, the next move? How how can I be prepared? You live in Nashville, you know. You go to Los Angeles. Guys are struggling left and right. There are guys, there are guys out there that are doing really well. They're, they're, but they're guys that have been established for years. They're pretty much in a small circle of people that all work together doing sort of Emmys, the Oscars, a few records here and there, a smattering of records, a movie once in a while. Although they've taken the movie business to to um, Prague or someplace overseas. Where they can get the orchestras to play for less money, and they don't have to pay royalties or residuals, things like that. There's always somebody figuring a way to take mm. what it is that you have. Like you don't write anything for film and television and keep your publishing. They don't deserve your publishing. They're not paying you for your publishing. It's hard. It's heartbreaking. They just take whatever they can take. People take what they can take. Yeah. And 
<clears throat> musicians. You know, I remember I was doing a lot of writing for TV, and and uh, this goes for for being a studio musician, a composer. It goes for any part of the music business. Actors, it's all the same. Mm-hmm. So you you there. I was doing some successful TV shows. And now the business is changing and everybody wants to be a composer. So I get called to do this show and they said, but the one catch is we'd like you to do it, spec it out and, you know, do it. And we're not going to pay you. Um, we're not going to pay you your rate. Do we want you to do this free and, or really cheap? And it was just, it was terrible. And I was working producing this, a singer and she was doing a gig in LA at the um, BB Kings up at universal. And uh, I went to see her play and it was the day that one of these things had happened and I had to make some decisions and I'm sitting there. And so we sit in during a break uh, in her show, we're sitting down, she and I are sitting down at the table having a drink and uh, joined by two friends of hers, a guy, who's a guitar player and his girlfriend who are friends of her, this man who was producing. And the guy says, and I'm telling her about the situation where I said, you know, they want me to do this show and work my ass off and create this music for nothing, no guarantees for nothing and just do it for free. And before I could get the words out of my mouth, the guy that was sitting there, the guitar player said, I'll do it. Oh my gosh. And I turned to him and I said, you know, the reason guys like me are in the position I'm in are because of guys like you and you will do it. And then when you're trying to make a living doing it three years, four years from now, and they come at you and you've got a studio to support, you've got musicians to pay and everything else to do to make it work. And they come and say to you, we want you to do this for nothing. And you say, I, I just can't afford to do it. Some other guy just like you is going to go, I'll do it for free. And that's what perpetuated this. That's what playing on people's records. That's scoring TV, movies, anything like that. People, especially television, people will undercut you or, and, you know, there's always a guy stand. There's a line of guys that'll do it for free. I feel like that's an ongoing conversation we have within our community. When we say, guys, listen, when you undercut yourself, you undercut all of us. You, 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 yeah, you lower, care. you lower the bar for all of us and you make the, you're, this is old news. My friend, you want to have this conversation is a totally different conversation. This is a conversation about how we've, destroyed our own business because guys are so insecure and will cut each other's throat to do a job. Let me tell you something. When I was coming up as a drummer in New York and I was pretty established in New York and I was really making a name for myself, I got called by a a producer. His name is a very big producer at the time. He was from the um, four seasons and he did, uh, he did uh, uh, Frankie Valley. Those, that, that genre of records. And I used to work for him a lot. His name is Charlie Colello. And he calls me up one day and he says, Rick, I have to tell you something. I just think it's fair. For, it's right and fair for me to tell you this. There, uh, I, I hired you to 
you know that session that I hired you to play on? This album I'm doing? It was like a Frankie Valli album or something like that. It was one of those kind of things. He did a lot of big records at that time, and I was on a bunch of them. I said, yeah. He said, well, I just want you to know that I got a call from, and I won't say the drummer's name, who was a successful studio drummer in New York, someone that you would not know. And he said, this guy called me, and he said, listen, I heard you hired Rick Murata to play on this record. And Rick gets double or triple scale at the time. And he said, I'll do it for free if you won't hire him. And he said, I just want to call you and let you know that he's probably doing this with other people that are calling you. And he said, I told him, no, I wanted what Rick Morata is going to bring to the table and it's worth the money. Yeah. But other people might not care. It's always been that way in this business Mm. more than you can imagine. And I never forgot that. And I appreciated that he told me about it. And, and and it was sad. It's really sad how cutthroat the business is. Right. Did he I tell you? Enough. I always used to say, there's enough work for everybody. Steve's playing on that Paul Simon record? Great. There's some other record that I'll be playing on. That's, that's fine. That's, Steve's going to be busy, so they're going to have to hire me. Or, you know, it's something like that. Mm-hmm. Or, or Steve Jordan. Same thing. Steve Jordan in New York. And, and it was, there was always kind of like enough for everybody to do. And everybody was fine with it. Yeah. It, it, it. Musicians are so insecure and so cutthroat. It's just unbelievable. Have you seen that pie chart floating around social media? It's like the life of a musician. And there's all these little slivers in the pie, like thinking about practicing, practicing, taking gigs, sleeping. And then most of the pie is crushing insecurity. Yeah. No, I haven't seen it, yeah. but I get it. Rick, listen, it's, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you, man, and just pick your brain on a lot of these things. I know we kind of got off the rails a bit into some pretty heady space, but um, there's so much useful things for people to just to consider and ponder as far as just how things have changed over the last 40 years, but how things have not changed, how, how stuff is still so relevant to what we're doing. Yeah. Appreciate your insight on this stuff and and all the things that you've brought to the table for for us to listen well, to. It's my pleasure. Well, I'm going to let you go and maybe you get some golf okay, in today, but uh, I thanks thanks so much for your time, Rick. My pleasure anytime. Okay, talk to you soon. Take care. Okay, bye-bye. So there you go. There is our conversation with Rick Murata. Unfortunately, I did not have a chance to meet him in person while he was here. In Nashville for his master class, but I want to thank Harry McCarthy for making the connection with us to Rick, and I really appreciate that and him taking the time to talk to us. Stay tuned next week for Zach Albetta's interview. As always, subscribe to us on iTunes, and you can find us now on YouTube. I'm slowly trying to populate our YouTube channel with old uh, episodes that you can find. So uh, again, thank you so much for listening, and we've got some exciting things coming up in the coming months. We'll keep you posted on that, and uh, hope to see you around. Bye-bye.